This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, we were just talking about this with Gord McDonald over there in the Global Newsroom. The city of Vancouver is painting the ground really bright red around five of their busiest bus stops because they have this constant problem of people stopping there. Oh, I'm just going to run in and get something or I'm just waiting for somebody. I'm just going to park here for a second. And then, of course, slows down the bus flow, makes it difficult for buses. So they don't want any ambiguity about this at all. They are painting bright red the road so you have you have absolutely no excuse for not knowing that you're not supposed to stop there it's costing about two hundred thousand dollars it's being funded by translink so for our hot question of the day today we want to know do you think this is a good use of money do you go yeah this helps traffic flow people can't help but you know miss this now you can't or do you say no that is too expensive check out our hot question of the day uh you can go to um at cknw on twitter you can also go to simi sarah 980 i'd also love to hear from you on the buzz line be honest have you ever done this? Have you ever taken up spot at a bus stop there? Just one eye on the rearview mirror waiting to see if a bus comes because that really does impede traffic flow. So be honest. Give us a call on our bus line. We are live this morning at BC Children's Hospital in support of the Dream Lottery and in particular for the early bird, which, by the way, the deadline for that is tonight. But you know what? I don't think we're going to get to the deadline. From what I understand, what I was just told, there are fewer than 500 tickets or so right around there. I should say around 500 tickets left for the early bird lottery. And it's no wonder because the prizes are great. If you would like to know more about that, make sure you check it out online. There's lots of information. Uh, just go to bcchildren.com. You can give them a call at 604-692-2333, and we'll keep you updated on how that goes. We're going to tell some stories as well from BC Children's coming up. But right now, though, you may have seen the headlines this week in this latest health story that all of a sudden, maybe red meat isn't so bad for you after all. I know it caught my attention, too, when I saw this headline because it goes against everything that we have heard from public health organizations for, well, years now. So what is it really all about? We wanted to get some help kind of translating uh, these latest health findings. So joining us now is Leslie Young, Global News Health Reporter. Leslie, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Can you help us out with this then? Like what's, I know the headlines are one thing, but what did this study actually say? So the bottom line of this study is they're recommending that you continue eating the amount of processed meat or red meat that you were already eating. And the reason they they came to this conclusion is they say that the evidence to support all these recommendations that you eat less meat is actually pretty weak. So what they're saying, it's they're not saying that meat is good for you, that you should go out and eat a lot more of it more what they're getting at is we don't know it's bad and we don't know enough to tell people that they shouldn't eat it right that seems to reference then that study from what was that a year ago two years ago that that raised all those concerns about processed meat yeah well so as as you mentioned pretty much every public health body every organization has recommended now for a long time that people cut back on eating red and processed meats and they say uh, some of these are linked to cancers they're linked to cardiovascular problems uh, you know fairly serious things Uh, this is even mentioned in the canada food guide like they say they don't say don't eat meat they just say consider vegetable proteins instead 
So then it must be hard for people. And I know it's hard for people because it seems like every couple of months there's a study out that comes out that contradicts the previous one. Well, that's the whole thing, right? So it, it is confusing and it's, it's confusing for everyone. And part of the reason why this keeps happening is because of the nature of nutrition research. So nutrition research is actually pretty hard to do. Uh, you can't really get like a, a randomized controlled trial to look at how many vegetables we should eat because it's really hard to control everything a person eats. There are a lot of factors that go into it. Uh, you might, you, you know, you can't lock somebody in a lab and monitor everything they eat for years and see if they get cancer or not. So what they have to do instead is take these large groups of people and ask them every so often what they ate and follow them over time. So this gives researchers clues, you know, about right. uh, about what some of the effects might be. But it also means that there could be other things that factor into it. You know, if somebody exercises, uh, how rich they are, where they live, you know, all, all these kinds of things. Right. So they can, uh, they can control for some of these things, and they do. Uh, but it's a little tricky. So what it means is that the medical evidence maybe isn't as good as it might be in like a drug trial. And that's why, you know, this particular study is, is saying, well, it's not that great. Is there a middle ground somewhere, Leslie, where people can go, okay, like I don't need to eat this every day, but I'm just going to play it safe. So maybe what is there like two or three times a week that they can say safely that this is okay? Well, it's a little hard to say, and you know, I, I don't want to tell people exactly how much they should and shouldn't eat myself, right. um, but the nutrition experts I spoke to all kind of say that it's better right now to keep relying on those guidelines, so things like the Canada Food Guide, because science changes all the time, so there will be contradictory studies that come out every so often, but a lot of these recommendations are based on years and years of evidence. So they say, you know, maybe take a look at that, see, see what things like that say. And if you have a lot of questions, maybe ask an expert like a dietitian. That's usually the way to go. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks very much. That's Leslie Young, our Global News health reporter, helping us out with that headline that you saw. Oh, that all of a sudden red meat is good and don't listen to those other studies. It's always good to actually thoroughly read the story. I think a lot of times we see the headline and it goes by and we read the first line of the story, but actually getting into the detail, as Leslie just did for us, is super helpful in trying to figure out what they are actually saying. This is my daughter. Oh, adorable. Hey, we're down at BC Children's Hospital. I just actually saw Josephine, so I wanted to give her a little wave because we're going to be talking to Josephine's mom right now. Uh, we're at BC Children's, as I mentioned. We're here to support the Dream Lottery. And when we do that, one of the reasons why is we want to tell you the stories. When you buy a ticket and some of that money goes to children's, it goes for research. It goes for programs. It goes to help uh, little girls like Josephine. Her mom is Michelle Coy, his with us right now. Hi, Michelle. I know you're a little distracted there. How's Josephine <laughs> Hi, doing Cindy. today? She's doing really good today. Yeah. 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 Today's the last day of her chemo treatment this week. So we're really happy. We got the, the butterfly needle out today and Aww. she can go to daycare tomorrow. Yay. How old is she? She's uh, two. She'll be three in November. Hey, listen, she's a tall girl. She's a, she's a, yeah, she's a solid lady. She is all. Now, she just finished chemo and she looks great. Like she's, 
that must be so hard for you as a parent. Like, what happened? How did you first think that something might be wrong? You know, it was a, it was really strange because uh, she had a rash. She had a diaper rash and a rash in her head. And, you know, for a long time, it just wouldn't go away. We had multiple doctors uh, looking at it. And they all just said, you know, cradle cap, regular diaper rash. You know, she's a, she's a solid girl. So it's just, you know, that's just what it is. Um, and then eventually it just started hurting and, and I thought this isn't normal. You know, she's, she's almost two here and it's not normal. So I, I want to get this scene. And how long was that? Like when you say from the time that you had it, you oh, know, probably from birth. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a really hard cancer to diagnose because it really does mimic, um, the, you know, a diaper rash or cradle cap. So it's, it's a really hard one to diagnose. So it took, and it's on average, um, for, for this type of cancer, about two years, um, is when, is when the kids start coming in, um, because they realize, wait a minute, this is not, you know, diaper rash anymore. This is, this is something different. So, um, so yeah, we finally saw a pediatric dermatologist here, Dr. Lamb. He's wonderful, and um, we we weren't really thinking it was uh, any sort of uh, cancer. I thought um, it was a rash or probably yeah. dermatolo- dermatologist or something like that, right? Yeah. So it kind of came out of left field for us. Um, we we came in, we got some biopsies done, and then I got a phone call at work saying. Uh, you have a an appointment with oncology either today or tomorrow. <laughs> Wait a minute, is that how you found out? That's how I oh, found that's out. Oh, that's rough, yeah. Michelle. Yeah, it was um, it was really out of left field. Yeah. yeah. And so, what has that process been? I mean, it's obvious a nightmare. Oh, and you know, I'm yeah. so glad to see she's doing well. But coming to children's and having to deal with this, what has that been like? Oh, it is overwhelming. It is yeah. overwhelming because it's so foreign and it's. Um, it's the lack of information. It's the, you know, and um, the, thankfully, the minute you walk through these doors, there are people supporting you everywhere in, in every single way. You know, we didn't even know what a, a child life specialist was until we showed up here. And she's in charge of the playroom up in oncology. And um. she is fantastic and Josie loves her and it makes the process for her so much better she she was talking to her brother the other day who's who's five and um he was asking her about what happens here and she said well it's kind of like daycare it's kind of like another daycare isn't that awesome that she says that though (laughs) yes yes so um they make it so positive for for her and for everyone and what kind of treatment has Josie been having um, so she's been having chemo. Um, mm-hmm. So she's been having um, first. Her first treatment was uh, vimblastine, which is, uh, you know, she gets it in an IV, and and um, uh, unfortunately that didn't work well for her, um, and there was uh, some new lesions growing. So we've switched um, to an, another couple chemo drugs here. Um, fingers crossed that they're going to be going um, well for her. Thankfully, they're um, they're well researched. These these two treatments, yeah. um, so uh, we have hope um, that they're gonna they're gonna be successful. Um, our next stage, if they're not, which is actually a real possibility for Josie at this point, um, is. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it could be stronger chemo, um, or it, it could be more experimental um, drugs. So um, we've been we've been very lucky so far to have um, the the treatment we've had so far, and um, knowing that other people have gone through it and knowing yeah. what to expect in a lot of ways. Um, so we're hoping that that will continue, but we may be onto a new path um, in in December here. But the options are there, right? And I think that's the important thing for cases like Josie is that it's not just like we're trying this and that's it. You've got other options. Yes. So um, that that's you know one thing for me. I'm the type of person who likes to know all the information ah, and really yes. study it. Um, so yes, there are options there. Um, you know, and they'll. 
the the team up there is amazing. They will give me all the information that I can handle or I want um, to be able to to look into all the options for her. Um, and especially with this type of a, a cancer, because it's pretty rare. You know, a, a lot of people, most people, will never encounter it and will have never heard of it before. Is um, it mainly in children? Um, it, it, it comes a lot in children. It does happen in adults as mm-hmm. well. Um, it, it's um, I can't pronounce it. I mean, it's called LCH, <laughs> but I can't tell you what that actually stands it, for. Langerhans cell histiocytosis. So it's an immune cell that's going crazy um, in her body and mostly in her skull and her soft tissue in her head. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's we're really thankful that there has been research so far, so that we can have confidence in the treatments we're giving her. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of other kids up there that have a lot of um, other different um, illnesses, different types of cancers as well. So, can I just say how impressed I am with your daughter right now because she's been standing here with us while Michelle is talking, and she's got a fruit cup, and she is just going at that fruit cup, and she is <laughs> loving it. So it's, I mean, her appetite's great, and she you looks know, just like any other two year old so having a good time. This is the result of the team honestly because um this is her first chemo of this set where she's been feeling good um they have designed a protocol to fit her um for this so what does that mean what does that involve um well it's it's giving her certain types of drugs and you know and so she's she's got all the drugs right now <laughs> to keep her nausea at bay <laughs> so yeah that's she's, good though she's because it's doing, working Look it her, is working loving the fruit we are very happy that that she's tolerating this a lot better now if you'd seen her you know a month ago or or before that you would uh, it would it's a very different lady <laughs> <laughs> well she looks great now michelle what about the support for the family is that is that here as well Oh, everywhere you look, you know, you, you can't turn around without being supported in some way. Um, the nursing staff, the doctors, child life, the social workers, you know, anything you need, there is somebody here and they are positive and they are kind and they are compassionate. Oh, well, she dropped her fork. <laughs> uh, did you know that before? Cause I know a lot of people who once you don't ever want to have to use the hospital, but then you're astounded when you do have to use the hospital about what it's like. Yeah, so um, I came to Children's um, briefly as a child myself. So I remembered I had positive memories um, from that. Um, so I, I had an idea um, of, I remembered the playrooms and, the, and you know, the wonderful support staff. But I, I didn't really remember because when I stepped through these doors and, and, you know, there is literally somebody helping you at every stage. The volunteers that come in when you're an inpatient, oh my goodness, there's so many volunteers that are there and they are wonderful and they are warm and, you know, they, they'll give you that time so that you can go get a coffee or, you know, have just a break and it is so, it, it, it's, it's gratitude. You're you know, one of the rare work. people then who were, you were here as a child and also here as a parent. So you've seen it from both sides. Yeah. And I've seen the development and I'm, I'm astounded um, because, you know, from, you know, I'm not that young anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, it was a long time ago that I was here as a child and um, the change, you know, there's just yeah, so They get much, better and better and better at it. So much um, that they can do now to help the kids and make it normal. Yeah. You know, and, and really normalize things for her as much as possible, which is so important for us. That is so true. And, you know, the kids bounce back. We know that. But it's also important to really provide support. We we were looking at, Michelle and I were looking in the commercial break at the brochure for the Dream Lottery. And you said, you've already got your ticket. I already I already bought my ticket a while ago. <laughs> yeah. I really um, strongly believe in, in supporting Children's Hospital. And actually, um, I was thinking back and um, as foreshadowing their birthday party. So my kid's birthday party last year. Um, instead of presents, we asked for donations for Children's Hospital because we feel strongly about supporting this. And that was before any of this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
foreshadowing. Well, you never know. Well, you never know. <laughs> well, and I you think never that's know. what I've always yeah. told parents too is that you don't want to come here, but you just want to be able to know that if you had to, it's there to help you and support you. Exactly. Well, yeah. Michelle, we wish you all the best. Thank you. We wish Josie all the best. Still loving that fruit cup mm-hmm. there. So thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No problem. And for having me. fingers crossed as well. I'm sure she's going to bounce back. She looks and great. Can I just say thank you to everyone who is supporting this lottery because it means everything to us. Okay. Well, listen, we're so glad. It's a little thing. We think it's a little thing buying a ticket, but um, we love to hear stories like Josie and that's why people buy it because they want to make sure she's a-okay. Thanks, Michelle. Thank I you. really appreciate that. You may initially think of this next story as a Vancouver story, but actually it's about anyone who ever drives into the city and the route that they take. So you know what? That's probably you, no matter where you live in Metro Vancouver. It will also impact anyone who goes to the new St. Paul's Hospital once it's all said and done. What's happened is that Vancouver City Council is debating a number of recommendations on the future of Prior Street. Now, this is that narrow road that connects to the Georgia and Dunsmere viaducts from East Vancouver. It's kind of used as an arterial route. We're going to talk more about the potential for what's going to happen here with the help of our next guest. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Fry, thank you so much for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. So what's on the table here for Prior Street? What's being discussed? Well, I should add, it's, it's no longer really discussed. We made a decision last night at Council to formally downgrade Prior Street to a collector road and to... Uh, uh, move some of the truck traffic off Prior Street and start focusing that more onto Malcolm and National Avenues in anticipation of, of the hospital coming and the anticipation of the uh, twinning of the Burrard Inlet Line. And we've also approved uh, the creation of an underpass to serve the new uh, uh, collector road uh, at the new rail line uh, should the rail company wish to pay for that. So at no cost. To okay, and so... How is that going to work then? So I know Prior is right now the one that goes you go to Venables and you get on and onto the viaduct and you're in downtown, right? That's right. Yeah. So it's it, it's it's a de facto arterial, but it was never actually intended to be an arterial. It was part of a larger freeway scheme when they built the, the viaducts in the, in the 1970s. And at the time, the community fought a larger freeway plan. Uh, they managed to stop the freeway, but they weren't able to stop the construction of the viaducts, which was a separate uh, federal funding stream. So we were left with viaducts that dumped onto, instead of a highway, dumped onto uh, a local collector road, uh, which isn't wide enough really to accommodate a full arterial. And so the decision yesterday is to return the road to a collector road, and which is essentially the difference between an arterial and a collector for, for your listeners. An arterial is, is a commuter road that takes uh, travelers through an area, and a collector is a, is a, is a local serving road. So it would essentially... Right pick up traffic that is coming to the area or leaving the area. Right. This is going to affect a lot of people because I think a lot of people take that route where they come down Clark Drive, they turn left onto Pryor, and they head into downtown. So now what is the route that you're thinking and planning for people to take? Well, that's 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 where the work of our engineering staff will come in, and they're going to do some more detailed analysis about where they're going to uh, shunt traffic. I mean, one of the big challenges for that route right now is uh, the the opening up of the Burrard Inlet Line. So in the last two years, CN Rail has expanded use of that that rail line, and it's led to some pretty significant blockages, and it leads to a lot of backed-up traffic. Uh, CN has applied and uh, has received permission from Transport Canada to twin that line, so there's going to be even more rail traffic. 
so that's prompted conversation about how we deal with with that arterial connection and the decision we made last night at, at, at council is that we're not going to be putting an arterial in that location okay so what is going to happen then well, so the anticipation is that the, the arterial traffic that is currently going through that location will be picked up through other routes, so notably Powell, Hastings, Terminal. Uh, and, and drivers will probably end up, I mean, when we're talking about commuters coming in from outside of town, they'll start, start looking at alternate routes altogether. And again, that's where the engineering sort of analysis comes in. So do you, do you see it then so, as so kind that, of dispersing so traffic, be, like north of Prior Street? Uh no, or south. I mean, it depends where, where commuters are coming in from, really. So what's going to happen, is, essentially, is when the viaducts come down, because this is also connected to the removal of the viaducts, and once the viaducts come down, they'll create a whole new road network. Uh, and, and the attraction of traveling on the viaducts won't really be there because it'll be an at-grade road with traffic lights and the like. So many commuters may well choose to, to take Broadway to Camby, for instance, to get to downtown, depending on where they're coming from. Right. Okay. And how is the new St. Paul's Hospital going to impact all this as well? Uh, well, this is this gives some uh, some direction to the St. Paul's has been sort of waiting in limbo to see what the outcome of this decision is. They have uh, sort of a plan A and a plan B, and this will allow them to. They're actually immediately after the vote we had last night, we we uh, sent uh, the St. Paul's rezoning to public hearing. So that'll be coming up in about three to four weeks, and have a more full fulsome discussion about the future plans for St. Paul's. But a lot of the access for St. Paul's will be really coming from from um, the, the new road work network that they're going to be creating, which is more accessible to Main Street and, uh, right. of course, Terminal Avenue. I guess my question that for that, Councillor Fry, then is, so can we really predict what this is going to look like? Because until St. Paul's is nailed down where things are going to go and where the, what the roads are going to look like, is it possible to predict any of this right now? Well, I mean, this, this gives certainty to St. Paul's and their planning. So now they can they can say, okay, we know now what the intention of, of that particular arterial is or is not going to be, because bearing in mind, there was quite a few different options for putting an arterial in that could have been on Malkin Avenue, which is the, the established right away for, for, a, a high, for a highway, but currently services a lot of the produce terminals who are, you know, undergoing their own uh, growth challenges with, with the land valuation and industrial intensification coming with the hospital. So one of the things that we decided last night was to keep, keep those options open on, on Malkin Avenue in case we need them. Uh, so we'll be retaining the right-of-ways that we have currently um, and making sure that there are options in the future for, for the expansion and growth of industrial intensification along those industrial lands. And at the same time, looking at how we can mitigate some of the direct impacts on the neighborhood by moving the, the truck traffic to what we call back of house. So it'll be on the, the south side of the new St. Paul's and accessing Malkin Avenue and then coming up along Raymer into an underpass, if, should, the, should the rail company choose to build that, uh, an underpass that will service the, the eastbound traffic. Right. Yeah, you said that twice. Should the rail company choose to build that? How do you know, or when will you know, if the rail company is going to choose to build that? I, you know, the rail company has a, has a, an established strategy for for at grade separation, and and they'll sort of triage this based on their needs. Uh, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the rail company will want to build this at grade separation sooner than later because they are expanding that line. And this actually frees us up as a city because we're not on a hook for what is essentially a national transportation strategy. 
So of is course, it safe to say, Councillor Fry, that we're not really going to recognize this whole area in, say, like five years? I think St. Paul's would be a massive game changer for, for, for the city at large. And, uh, and we'll see uh, a new downtown uh, established as, as downtown moves eastward, for sure. So the impact of St. Paul's will be pretty significant on, uh, on our entire city and certainly on the east end. So part of this is trying to manage that so that, that, that we yeah. have a little bit more certainty around what our, the future of our city looks like. Okay, so and what is course, the next step for everyone. Right. What is the next step here? So what happens now? So from here, we're going to work with our staff to identify some immediate traffic calming stuff. One of the things that came out last night is, is reestablishing a 30-kilometer-an-hour zone adjacent to Strathcona Park on Prior Street. So as an arterial, we haven't been able to, to, to nail down a 30K zone. As a collector, we can now re- return it to a, a proper 30K park zone. So that'll be one of the first moves. And then looking at how we manage... The, 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 the experience. So right now, sidewalks are too narrow and the, the road is too wide for the space that it's in. And it, and it creates some really sort of uh, unsafe conditions. So we're going to be looking at how we can mitigate that in the immediate. And a lot of those changes will start rolling out in the new year. So that, that'll be things like, you know, um, more pedestrian comfort, wider sidewalks, uh, more parking, those kind of solutions will be in the immediate. And then looking at at, at temporary solutions and then, you know, long-term infrastructure, hardscaping stuff like traffic bulges and the like. And, of course, allowing us to accommodate emergency vehicles and and uh, and local bus service, which will still be maintained along that collector route. So, so the well, that's going to be really a lot of changes, is, is yeah. It's no longer going to be a commuter route, but it will still be an accessible road. So then how are you going to stop the commuters from using it? Like, it's going to take, I think, a long time to get people used to that, don't you think? Yeah, and that's part of how, how staff are going to pilot this out. I mean, I think the key is that that uh, commuters are going to look for the, the fastest, most efficient way yeah. to get into town. And, and this will no longer be a fast, efficient way. And I would argue that a lot of people have been finding it less efficient over the years anyway. Certainly, um as a local resident on Strathcona, I've often found myself going over the viaduct and then getting stuck on the viaduct because traffic's backed up because of something at the stadium or whatever, and uh, and 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 kicking myself. Why didn't we take the other route? Because this is uh, right. now we're stuck on the viaduct, and that that's happening more often than not. And I think a lot of people are already leaning towards alternate routes. Translink's in, uh, introducing a new um, rapid bus service on Hastings Street. And TransLink's also just expanded the uh, Expo line capacity by a third. So I think, you know, certainly as we move towards things like this new St. Paul's and, and the kind of uh, industrial and, and commercial activity that's going to intensify around the area, we'll probably see an uptick in, in transit usage and those kind of connections, increased walk and cycling for more local residents. Right. Well, we'll see how this works. Uh, listen, Councillor Fry, thank you for your time. Hey, my pleasure. Take care. Appreciate that for explaining it all to us because it can get a bit complicated. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor. And if people want to go from Vancouver to Burnaby, now they might have to pay more money. Is that going to affect you guys? Well, and, and of course that affects our residents and, and all, of, all of those things are concerning. That is Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley speaking to our Global News reporter, Robin Crawford. And he was reacting to the recommendations that were voted on by Vancouver City Council yesterday. We were talking about this earlier on the show. Essentially, if you plan on being a ride-hailing driver in Vancouver, it's going to cost you 
$155 for a license fee and $100 per vehicle. And that is just in the city of Vancouver. What if other communities decide to do the same thing? It's going to put a lot of obstacles in the way of somebody who was considering doing this for a living. On top of that, they passed a surcharge of 30 cents per pickup and drop-off uh, during certain times of the day to try to avoid congestion in busy downtown areas. So Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley was kind of raising some concerns about this, saying those licensing fees may make it harder for his residents, people who live in Burnaby, to get home if they're in Vancouver. And he's not the only mayor that is raising those concerns, actually. Jonathan Cote is the mayor of New Westminster, also chair of the Trans Lake Mayor's Council, and joins me now to talk more about this. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. So what do you think about what the city of Vancouver did yesterday? Yeah, well, you know, I, I certainly understand uh, the city of Vancouver's interest to to, to want to look at, at regulating uh, ride-hailing in, in that community. I think that's initially where a lot of the focus is, is going to be and a lot, of the, a lot of the demand. And I think legitimately Vancouver has some concerns that actually congestion could get a lot worse in that community with, with ride-hailing there. And, and they want to find opportunities to, to be able to manage that. But I think the long-term solution actually has to be a more regional approach on, on how we manage and, and, and regulate ride-hailing. Because if you have 21 different regulations across this region, uh, I just can't see that working out to be effective effective public policy so uh, to me I, I hope the next step is actually all of the cities coming together and recognizing we, we may have a few different goals when it comes to to ride hailing but can we at least do it in a coordinated approach because I think having individual municipalities all taking very different approaches uh, could could lead to a bit of a bit of a mess in an unworkable situation. Now, Maricota, I have to ask, why are we at this point doing this? Like, why did we not think of this ahead of time? Why are all these cities leaving this to the last minute? Yeah, well, you know, how the regulation is set up provincially is, is number one, the province uh, had, had went through their lengthy process of how they were, were going to be setting up setting up riot hailing, and then, then at the end uh, notified cities that if they wa- cities wanted individual regulations themselves, there was a small area that they can... In, 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 be involved with, but cities weren't, uh, you know, kind of involved or informed of that until the province had completed their process. So cities have actually had a very short time frame to even consider what they want to do locally because they didn't know the framework that the the province would be would be working under, and that's why most cities, uh, you know, haven't haven't been able to even uh, take on this this new form of of regulation. I, I think the city of Vancouver has has been the most proactive in, in jumping out first, but I think they're actually the most that. Uh, potentially could have the negative impacts due to ride hailing on on their road road network. So I, I think there is reason there, but I think as we continue these discussions and evolve it, uh, certainly a more regional approach uh, it would be the far more appropriate way to to deal with this. So are you telling me that even in New Westminster, you didn't prepare for this in any way, shape, or form, and even studying what might happen? Uh, certainly, we uh, did provide feedback that uh, we did have uh, some concerns with respect to to how ride hailing might uh, might impact our road network. But we didn't even know what options we would have to regulate it. So there was nothing to to study. That we, we didn't know if we could charge a regulation fee, how curb fees would be, and we had no idea what the the playing field would be. So uh, to to kind of expect cities within months to really operate in an area that they've never regulated before and to hear that the ground rules there, um, you know, I, I don't think is, is, you know, would have been realistic. 
Having said that, I think uh, the way the province system is set up is cities don't have to actually engage. They could just simply leave it up to the provincial regulation and allow uh, ride-hailing to, to do whatever it wants in a jurisdiction. But I think more and more a few cities, uh, particularly more urban cities, are going to want to mitigate some of the, the potential negative impacts that uh, ride-hailing can have on the transportation system and be able to, to, to be involved in that. And I think what I'm saying is if we are going to engage in that discussion, uh, we'd be far better off dealing with it as a Metro Vancouver region as opposed to 21 different cities. Right. Well, we did know like a month or so ago that the province was going to allow it to be like one region, Metro Vancouver. Has there ever been any discussion among the mayors about, hey, let's think about approaching this together? Yeah, and uh, we've had some preliminary conversations actually at the Mayor's Council of TransLink. Uh, although TransLink isn't isn't normally seen as a, a regulatory body for for these kind of things, uh, usually those are done in individual individual cities. Uh, the recognition is there isn't really a natural regional body, with the exception of either TransLink or Metro Vancouver, that could even really take this take this on. And given that ride hailing has such a big impact when it comes to transportation, uh, TransLink and the Mayor's Council may very well be the most appropriate body if we want to look at this regionally. Right. So what is New Westminster going to do now, Mayor Cote? Are you going to take it down that route? Like, is somebody going to step forward and say, come on, municipalities, don't all do this individually? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we've already had a preliminary discussion that, uh, at, at the TransLink and Mayor's Council level. Uh, you know, I think from my perspective, uh, the City of New Westminster's perspective is going to be, we want to actually support the creation of a more regional regional framework uh, there. And I know a number of other municipalities are already taking that position. So I think if, if it becomes clear that the majority of cities in the Metro Vancouver region want to take a more regional approach, that will give the, the mandate and authority for, for TransLink to uh, uh, to, to take a, a deeper look as to what it would be involved or whatever organization might be able to to be able to do that. Is there a timeline for this? Because we know TikTok, right? People want to see this happen. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, the reality is, uh, uh, you know, the, the absence of, of this regional framework isn't going to in any way pr- Put a barrier up in place to uh, uh, to, to ride hailing entering into into the Metro Vancouver area. Uh, ride hailing will be able to come, and I think it, it might actually stop uh, other cities from implementing individual things that might be harder to put together later. And then give us the time frame to to figure out uh, uh, you know over the next year how we might put uh, put a regional regional strategy together. So I think the reality is. Without that regional framework, it's not going to bury or put a stop to ride-hailing, but as long as we're communicated, we want to work towards that. Uh, that, that certainly puts the, the ride-hailing industry, uh, uh, you know, so that they're aware that this work is going to be and that they engage in those discussions. But you said over the next year. Uh, so does that I, you mean know, that in I, the meantime, drivers are going to have to get licenses in all these different communities? No, uh, right now, unless the city mandates that, and only the city of Vancouver is the only city that does, then no one would have to get individual licenses uh, in, in the individual cities. So um, I think if we had the goal and the region agreed we wanted to do this regional approach, what it would mean is there actually wouldn't be, uh, without the, with the exception of Vancouver, any other, any other things put in place. And if we're able to develop that framework, then, then we'd move forward with that. Um, there, so cities do not have to put in their own own regulation. They could actually have no regulations whatsoever, no licensing at all, and that would that's actually the default position. Uh, and I guess what I would argue is leave that as the default position until the region has figured out how we want to do a coordinated approach. All right, all right. Well, Mayor Cote, thank you very much for joining us on this. 
Okay, thanks for having me on the show. I think we have a lot more discussion to go on this issue, but that sounds a lot different than what we heard from the city of Vancouver, which is good. That's Jonathan Cote, the mayor of New Westminster and the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Just letting you know that our next guest for our Science with Simi segment got a real kick out of our science <laughs> opener there. We're going to talk to her in just a moment. We're here at BC Children's Hospital. And listen, we are, we're here to, uh, you know, boost the BC Children's Hospital Dream Lottery. But guess what? It's all sold out. Done. All the tickets are gone. I know. It was very busy. They set a record-setting pace this year. Uh, I barely had a chance to get my ticket before they all sold out. So not only is the early bird done, all of the tickets are gone. Thank you so much for your support of the lottery. Uh, It does great work. It goes to all sorts of amazing different areas of the hospital, like the one we are about to talk about now with our guest. Uh, You know, healthcare's evolved a lot in the past few decades. There's all sorts of new scientific discoveries. Uh, My next guest is Dr. Tamara Vanderwall. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and neuroimaging researcher here at the hospital. I want to find out what this is all about. Dr. Vanderwall, thanks for being here. Thank you, Simi. You liked our science opener. I loved the science opener. Really? Fantastic. Because we want to promote more science understanding is what we're and trying to do. And you need a jingle to do that. Of course so you need a jingle to, to do that. So what is it? Can you explain to us exactly what it is that you do? Sure. So one day a week I see patients. Um, and the other four days a week I run a neuroimaging lab, which means that we're basically using an MRI scanner uh, to scan kids' brains while they're doing different things, like either doing a task. What I like to do best is use a movie. And what I'm trying to do is study the patterns of their brain function while they're watching these movies. And do you try to see if there's a similarity in the brain function? Like, is the same area lighting up? Are Mm -hmm. they all watching the same movie? Exactly. Ah. And so sometimes we're looking, uh, like, with kids with a certain type of symptom, and we'll compare those to kids who don't have that symptom. So, for example, we're just about to start um, a study in OCD. Uh, so kids with obsessive compulsive disorder and we're trying to understand like what is actually wrong in the brain that is causing the kids to have these symptoms and so the theory is that you'd be able to see that yes with lots and lots of data analysis (laughs) it's not like it just pops open on the scanner and we're like whoa there it is Uh, it's a very very intricate complex you know computationally expensive process to go through but yes i think that we can start to get there and to actually have answers in child psychiatry which we just up to this point really don't have yeah and this seems like two very different things like child psychiatry and neuroimaging how did they come together well they they come together in the brain (laughs) right so i think you know the way that we are trained to learn about child psychiatry and the way that I see a patient, right, Mm -hmm. is mostly I'm just asking questions and talking and trying to figure out what's going on. The piece that we don't have in medicine yet is what is causing this? What is wrong in the brain? If something's wrong with, say, a kid's heart, we can, you know, do a lot of different tests to figure this out. But because the brain is so complex, we just haven't gotten there yet as a field. So for me, they go hand in hand just because that's, you know, that's where it lives. That's where it has its being. Is there something that is more easily readable in a child's brain versus an adult's brain? No, I think unfortunately everything is more difficult in a child's brain. How come? So one of the things is that every kid that you see is at a different stage of development. Right. So you can't just put them all in a group together. 
right? So that just makes it more complex to start with. But the biggest problem for the kind of brain scans that I do is actually movement. So if a kid moves, which is super natural, right? Oh, kids move. I could see this, yes. And so if they move inside the scanner, these tiny little movements even just mess up the data like, like you wouldn't believe. And so that's been a major, major barricade. I was just thinking about this as you were saying it. So you tell me that you put the movie on when they're in the scanner? Yes. Oh, yeah. How do you make this work? How do you do that? So there's lots of different ways to do it. There's like these high-fangled goggles that kids can wear while they're in the scanner. So they have no metal in them because you can't have metal in the scanner. Well, yeah. Right? Or typically what we do is we have actually a monitor at the back of, this, of the bore. So the bore is this big, long cylinder that makes up the scanner. Um, and they can just watch it via a mirror system. So it's actually pretty. That part's pretty simple. What part's the really hard part? The hard part is getting from the brain scan to a meaningful piece of data, right? Because there's so much going on in the brain and we're collecting all of this complex signal and we're looking for like what's the important thing here and how do we, how do we find that and how do we see that? So you're embarking on research to see if you can label OCD in the mm -hmm, brain. Mm -hmm. Has this been used before and are there other things you have been able to identify? So some things have been used before. And yes, we've been able to learn a ton about the brain, about brain development, about child psychiatric disorders. But it's never gotten to the point where it could be used by a doctor for one specific patient, right? Mm. I can say a lot of stuff about what we know about the brains of groups of people with OCD. But what we haven't been able to do yet is have an individual patient come in and be able to do a brain scan and say, oh, this is helpful information. I can either pick a treatment based on this or I can give a diagnosis based on this, right? So it's going from this like group level where we have learned lots of good stuff down to how do I do this for a single kid in their family? Is this something that is being used in a lot of areas right now? So brain scanning in general is being used a lot. Yeah. This weird thing that I do using movies um, is really catching on right now. So there's a couple different, you know, groups using it. It makes it makes perfect sense. So I mean, my it's, dentist uses this to keep us uh, not, like you know focused in there and not paying attention to no, what I they're know. doing. And every single minivan in the yeah. world has a DVD player in it, right? Because <laughs> right. you have to be able to show kids something to help them stay still. So we use it for that, which helps a ton, but we're also using it because movies are so powerful, right? I, I can really study the brain while it's working, right? So it's a little bit, my analogy that I always use is like if, if you've ever heard of a cardiac stress test, yeah. you go in and you don't just sit there while they look at your heart, you walk on a treadmill and then you run. And so the movie is a little bit like the treadmill for your brain. Like I'm trying to drive the important connections so that I can study them. And I know that you in particular see beauty in those images as well, because you've actually done work that takes those images and kind of use it as art too, don't you? Yes. And I think I'm very into that interplay. One, because it's fun and I like doing it and I like things that look pretty, but <laughs> I really, really think that if you show something that's convincing and realistic and beautiful in the scanner, the brain reacts to that in a much more natural way, as opposed to something that's ugly and clunky, clunky and that like I made last night in 10 minutes on like YouTube or something, right? Right. So if I show you something that's really good, actually, 
I get better signal and my science is better. So I think the art actually makes for better science. So you're saying that even when you're showing the images to people, you want them to look pretty so they can appreciate the beauty of their brain as opposed to just showing them something very clinical. Yeah, and I want them to like be really engaged and enter into whatever I'm trying, you know, whatever the movie is, whatever I'm trying to evoke or not evoke. It has to be good and convincing. I think for for a long time in science, we've spent lots of money on the fancy MRI machines, on the computers, but we typically haven't been able to spend a lot of money on making the stimuli good. So they've typically been really ugly and pretty boring. And after you look at them for about two seconds, you're like, your brain is bored of it. So then what are we studying? Yeah. Right. So this is sort of like this new next generation of stimuli that we're using. And it's super fun. And it's great to do it here in Vancouver because this is Hollywood of the North. So we have great team people we can team up with. Yeah. Do you have good access to all of that? Like if you, you're kind of thinking outside the box here. So is this a good place to be doing that? It's an amazing place to be doing that, right? Just like so many different resources and creative people with skills and expertise. And, and it's so fun to integrate it. And people care about BC Children's. They care about the research that's happening here. They do. So we get like amazing buy-in and like, so you have this like creative energy that's going into this thing. And it's just, it's an incredible privilege to be a part of it. Well, some of your work actually shown at MoMA in New York City. (laughs) Yes. Not MoMA proper, but right next door to MoMA, they have this little thing called MoMA Studios. Yeah. Where they put on more sort of interactive types of exhibits. And so, yeah, I was lucky enough to be a part of one of those. Yeah, it was one it's of kind the, of a big deal. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah. I loved it. It was amazing. But you're a neuroimager and child psychiatrist who also had their art shown, you know, at yeah. MoMA. Yeah. Did you ever think that would happen? No. I mean, I wanted it to happen, but yeah. I never thought that it actually would. Whatever. I grew up in Vernon, you know, like you don't think, you know. Please dream big no matter where you live. This up, is where you absolutely live, where you grow true. Up, right? Absolutely. You true. touched on something really interesting about Children's Hospital. You're right. I think that people, when they hear it's for children's, they are much more willing to go kind of beyond and maybe even outside their comfort zone to help out. Yeah, I think this place serves an amazing function in the province, right? Like I remember growing up and having friends who came here for very serious medical care. And it, everybody knows children's, and it's just such a comfort to know that top-notch care is here, and that the you know the hospital is here. It's here for all of the kids in the province, you know. And the research and the funding from things like the lottery helps us always be one step ahead and trying to be the people giving the top-notch care. Um, so yeah, no, it's an amazing place to work. How do you decide what video or what movie the kids are going to watch so that you can generate a reaction out of them? It's an excellent question. So in, usually it depends like what we're trying to go after, what question, what scientific question we have. Um, so one of my favorite things that we do in our lab is to actually make a movie right, for a specific purpose and then test it and see if we got it right. right? So then we can look at the brain stuff and see... Did, did they get, laugh here? Did they you know, get yeah. sad here? Did they... Right. And did we get the brain stuff right? So that's, you know, that's a really, really fun interplay. Groups are using all sorts of movies. I mean, people, you can just use a Pixar movie. You could use pretty much... Well, it depends on which one. Do you want to use Coco? That's going to make kids cry. I know. See, these are very serious questions. You also don't want them to laugh really hard because that gives you head motion. So, you know, there's all sorts of questions. Oh, you're right. That's a yeah. very tough question. How long is this next OCD project going to take? Oh, gosh. A long time. Um, I would say... 
to do like the, to do the first phase and to start getting our first group of kids in, you know, and all of this depends on funding. Um, so I would say we're, it's like a five-year cycle, probably. I'm fascinated. I thought this was great. Dr. Vanderwall, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Simi. Good luck with your work. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Tamara Vanderwall. You wonder where your money goes when you buy lottery tickets? That is where your money is going when you buy a lottery ticket. Let's talk about jobs, growth, the economy, a hot topic, of course, during our federal election campaign. And there's new research out that suggests that the job growth from clean energy will actually outpace that from fossil fuels over the next decade. You know, one of the big issues, of course, when it comes to using fossil fuels is, you know, the jobs, the economy, everything that provides, particularly to a province like Alberta. This report comes from Clean Energy Canada, the think tank at Simon Fraser University, and it says that clean energy will create jobs at nearly four times the rate of other sectors of the Canadian economy. So let's find out more about this. Marin Smith joins us now, the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada. Marin, thank you very much for being here. Great to be here with you today, Simi. <laughs> now, can you tell me, Marin, what exactly did you look at when it came to putting these numbers together? Yeah, so first we looked at how many jobs exist in the clean energy sector in Canada because we, we hear a lot about fossil fuel jobs, but when we talk about energy, that's all we talk about. We don't talk about the clean energy jobs. Uh, it turns out there's 300,000 jobs already in Canada in the clean energy sector, uh, so that's good news. And if we continue with the climate and clean energy policies that we have in the country right now, um, we would be over half a million jobs by 2030. Now, that where, relies on... When you say on, clean energy, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so, so clean energy is, it's, one, it's producing clean energy. So wind, solar, hydro, um, jobs in transmission lines, etc. Uh, it's also jobs in wasting less energy. And in fact, that's where most of the jobs are. So it's building um, cleaner buildings, building retrofits, so jobs for insulators, HVAC installers, window uh, installers, is jobs building zero emission buildings uh, in clean transportation, it's jobs building electric vehicle component pieces or electric buses. It turns out Canada is a is leader in building electric buses. We've got companies in BC, Winnipeg, uh, Quebec, uh, it's bus drivers because that's more energy efficient to be uh, taking transit than to be commuting one person in a car. So wasting less energy, which is good for the economy, good, good for your pocketbook, and producing clean energy. Those are what the jobs are all about. Right. And so when you count the fossil fuel jobs, then are you also counting the car industry, like all of the other spinoffs? Yeah. In, in this, we counted... Both the fossil fuel jobs, we counted jobs in electricity when electricity is being created by fossil fuels uh, and jobs in trucking when trucking uh, is around fossil fuels. So we really created a similar type of jobs numbers. Now what we found is that you know we're going to grow uh, 160,000 new jobs in the clean energy sector by 2030. Uh, the fossil fuel jobs are going to go down a bit. Um, mostly that's due to automation, actually. <laughs> and so, you know, as we transition to the clean energy, you know, we're, the, the world's moving off of fossil fuels and towards clean energy. 
But that's not going to happen overnight. So those jobs aren't going to just fall off a cliff and, you know, suddenly all those workers are out of work. And that's really one of the messages we have about this is that there's a a fair bit of fear mongering that's been happening in the country, you know, in this polarized debate that it's either climate action or jobs in the economy. And I think what this study proves is that climate action is going to create jobs. It's going to be good for the environment economy, good for investment in Canada. Uh, And, you know, the fossil fuel jobs, you know, there'll be a natural decline in those jobs as the world moves towards cleaner energy. Uh, We need to make a plan for that. We need to make sure those workers have a transition plan, but it's not going to happen overnight. Right. But are we talking, I guess, the thing about the, the oil industry jobs in Canada has always been that they are very well-paying jobs, right? They support families very well. Are we substituting those jobs then for jobs of equal pay? Yeah, actually, we find that the jobs in the clean energy sector are similar type of pay as in the oil sector. You know, they're 70000 to 150000 a year, I think is the number that's being put around. So those, those are good-paying jobs for Canadians. Um, The other thing we found about the jobs is they're jobs in every province across the country. Uh, They're jobs in rural Canada as well as urban Canada. They're blue-collar jobs. They're white-collar jobs. A real diversity. And that's actually a a bonus for workers, the idea that they could actually work in the province that they live in and not have to commute and be away from their families. So that's a benefit as well. Right. Right. Marin, it sounds like the way you're describing it, though, is like this is going to be a gradual thing. And do you think we have seen this before in history? Uh, well, I think that you know, we've definitely seen it. If you see something like um, cell phones, do you remember, you know, 15 years ago, none of us had cell phones in our pockets. We all had landlines and we've seen that technology come online and that industry had to transition Uh, You know, you can have the same analogy with Blockbuster uh, shifting to Netflix. So we're seeing change happen in many different industries. Uh, This change, you know, I think with climate change, the way it has become really very real for Canadians over the last two years with the flooding in Ontario and Atlantic Canada, uh, the wildfires in British Columbia, Uh, the heat waves in Quebec, you know, people are being impacted by climate change and they really want to see climate action. Um, The other thing is the technologies are ready for prime time now. These technologies have come down in price, like electric vehicles, uh, wind and solar. These are now cost competitive in a way that they weren't a decade ago. So I think we're going to see them move forward more quickly than we've ever seen to date. And is there anything do you think that we need to do to make that happen or will it just happen naturally? Well, you know, this study was based on the existing climate policies that we have in the country. And in fact, now some of that's at risk as as we're in the midst of this federal election. uh, We have three parties, the Liberals, the NDP and the Green Party are saying they're going to keep those policies and in fact, build on them and add more. That'll create more jobs and attract more investment. Uh, there's one party, the Conservative Party, that's been saying that they will dismantle the existing climate policies. Uh, so that would affect these jobs. That would mean we would have less jobs in this area in the future and less investment. 
And I'd say the investment is a critical piece to talk about as well because, you know, our economy requires investment coming in to keep that type of job growth happening. Right, okay. That's what's what's at risk, and I think Canadians need to understand climate action uh, is good for the economy. It is uh, creating jobs and is creating economic growth and opportunities. Uh, we need to keep that momentum going. And when we're in the midst of this election, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Okay. And so do you think then that that message gets lost? Like, it seems to me that people think when they think about jobs, they think, no, we've got to support the resource sector and fossil fuels. That message doesn't really come across. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that uh, we've been very distracted by a very polarized debate in this country where we really are saying, one or the other. You know, you have to either, you're supporting jobs or you're supporting climate action. Uh, and I think that's disappointing that it, that's the understanding of Canadians. But that's what I, that's why we wanted to do this report was to really understand better what was the job scenario. And it's a very good scenario, over half a million jobs in this clean energy sector, if we continue the momentum on climate action. Interesting. Maren, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. That is, you too. That is Maren Smith, the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada. It's a think tank based at Simon Fraser University. You know, we've been talking about stories from BC Children's Hospital today in support of the now sold out Dream Lottery. But right now I want to introduce you to Kathleen Head. Kathleen has two boys, Nelson, who's nine, and Mitchell, who is seven. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. You come monthly to BC Children's. We do currently right now for Mitchell's chemotherapy treatment. And so what what brought you here to begin with, though? Originally... um, we were coming for both my boys because they were both born with hemophilia, which is a genetic blood clotting disorder. So that was discovered at birth for both of them. Um, and then down the line, Mitch, our youngest, was diagnosed with leukemia at four. And yet such a trooper. We've Mitchell and I had a very long conversation <laughs> in the commercial break <laughs> about who the best superhero yep. is, right? And so he's spirits are up he is good and that's what always amazes me about kids you know they're incredible and they really put things into perspective mitch has been through more in his seven years than most most adults will be and just he just his spirit is incredible what was it been like for you though really hard yeah really hard when we got that news I just, it just felt like the floor had opened up and the earth was going to swallow us whole. We had already been dealt the blow of hemophilia and we sort of thought we were immune from anything else. And then we... You're like, my bad thing happened exactly, already. Yeah. Exactly. It's not going to happen to it's us. More, Lightning more doesn't strike right? yeah. yeah. And it did. And um, so he was uh, given the diagnosis of leukemia and we had to deal with both and buckle in and make it happen. So and may I ask, what were the symptoms? So ironically, we had no symptoms because of Mitchell's hemophilia. Uh, the leukemia was caught by accident. Yeah, it was really it, strange. Is that a, kind of a blessing in disguise? It really is. It really is. I always say, well, we his hemophilia basically saved his life. Really? Yeah, we were here for for a routine checkup, and it was discovered through blood work. We had no idea. 
Yeah. And so was it caught early that they could tackle it well? Yeah, basically with leukemia, the treatment doesn't change. But because it was caught so early, he was more just fighting the cancer treatment and not the cancer itself. So, I mean, nobody knew that he had cancer except that he had a bald head, but it didn't stop him from anything. That's always good. It right? is. And yeah. Kids are always so amazing. They are so resilient. And so yeah. how are we doing now? He is cancer-free. Awesome, Mitchell. Big thumbs up. (laughs) He finished treatment in August. We come in once a month for a checkup, and he's having his port removed later this month. That's great. Yeah, after three years of treatment, it was a long road, but we made it. And I know he's really looking forward to the new Star Wars movie coming out. That's right. We talked about that. He's going to go and see that. He can't wait. Uh, Let's talk about the hemophilia there, too, because that's something that also gets dealt with here at BC Children's. How challenging has that been? What does that involve? Well, with two boys, it's not easy. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. We have to be very careful with any sort of injury, in particular joint or uh, bleeding in the chest or... Two boys. Two two boys. boys. Two boys. And they're not cautious. And you drop them off at school and there's playgrounds and we have to educate the school. And that's something where BC Children's has stepped in because our nurse has even come to our school to help educate the staff there. Wow. Yeah, it's been amazing support. How rare is it to have two boys in the same family with hemophilia? Well, it is genetic, so it does happen. Um, it's not, it's a 50-50 chance, so you're sort of dealt the odds. I know that there's around 100 boys living with hemophilia in BC, and we have two of them, so. Wow. Yeah. And what is that about? So you, if, if they do get injured, what happens at that point? Well, it's a lot of assessing and rest and ice, but usually we have to come into children's and they're giving an intra, they give an intravenous and they're given um, factor replacement therapy to help their blood clot. So on a daily basis, they don't have to take anything? They don't. They're not on prophylaxis. We give it on demand. Kathleen, how, for you as a mom, I mean, it's already hard enough as a mom to worry that your kids are going to hurt themselves. But for you, that is like a hundredfold, a thousandfold. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's taken a lot of time for my husband and I to manage it and um, be okay with it. Uh, but we know that we always have support behind us here at Children's. So it's just a phone call away if we're worried yeah. or scared or anything. And same with the school. We just know that we're covered and supported. So that helps. It takes a village. Do the boys understand? A hundred percent. We've been honest with it from day one. So they know exactly what's going on. It must be hard for you sometimes to go, no, don't jump on that. Don't. Yep. Like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> or in the early days when they're first learning to walk or first oh. learning to ride bikes or, you know, those normal everyday activities that kids learn. It's extra cautious for us. We had knee pads and pants and um, all kinds of extra activities that we were we were cautious with. So you're talking about how genetic it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, and so did it come down to the female line of the family or the male line of the family? Yeah, it, it travels on the X chromosome. So my father's actually a hemophiliac uh-huh. and the carrier gene carries down to me. My brother does not have anything to do with hemophilia. It carries down to me and then I passed the infected X chromosome onto both my boys. But that was something you were already aware of. Yes, though, it that was. would be a possibility. Yeah. For us. For some families, it isn't. But for us, we knew that it was genetic and in our family. Has it gone, yeah, way back in your family? Way back. We're able to trace our family all the way back to Knights of the Round Table. 
And I'm sorry. Yeah. What? <laughs> we are. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. And our... did not, honestly, I did not expect this interview to go yeah. that way. Because so, we were talking yeah. off air about yeah. how it's also, I know it from the British royal family. That's because correct. there's yeah. well-known cases of hemophilia in the British royal family, yeah. which led to the Russian royal family. Right. And of course, all sorts of issues there. Yeah. And you said your background is British. Yes. So we go on my father's side all the way back to the Knights of the Round Table. And um, I believe the hemophilia showed up somewhere in the 1500s for us. So, yeah. One person, right? I'm sure way back when there's a whole lot of people now who deal with this gene. Exactly. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. I know. And they, they have it here. The research here has it right down to the cytogenetics of it. So they pull it all apart and they look at it. And we know that there are five people in Canada with the same hemophilia cytogenetics as my boys. They're most likely our family. We do have other hemophiliacs in our family, but uh, it's interesting. Wow, that's just like a small sample of the work that they do here. So they're not just treating you, they're giving you all of these other answers to your background. Exactly, and that's why we're so thankful for the Dream Lottery and all the people who buy tickets for it because they are providing funds that go directly to help our children. Now, did you get your ticket for it this year? We did, we buy every year. Got lucked out because now they're all gone. <laughs> well, I'm glad we did when we did. Yeah, no kidding. It's, it's an amazing one this year. And boy, did they ever go fast. I was talking yeah. to the person who runs the lottery earlier and he was saying that he's never seen it go this fast before. Yeah, we're excited for it. I'll bet. There's lots of good stuff there. So once a month, the boys come here and is it just like a checkup? And The once a month is for Mitch's checkup for his leukemia. The boys together come a few times a year, a year to be checked in for their hemophilia. And there's numerous things, physio checks them blood work doctors nurses it's a full team do you find that as they get older it's a little bit easier to manage nope (laughs) i find it's harder (laughs) (laughs) and why is that well you know they're off on their own they want to do what their friends are doing you know my oldest was just talking to me how he wants to do join the ski and snowboard club like all of his friends and we have to say no to that so that's challenging they do other things they play basketball mitch hip hops they do a lot of swimming but there are times when we have to be the bad guys and say no so and you just hard. want to be able to like wrap them up in a cotton, giant cotton ball and send exactly. them out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. I stay very involved in their school well, so that do. it looks like I'm there for the school, but I'm really there checking in on them. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing a great job. Thank and you. Kathleen, you know what? Kudos to you. Thank you Mitchell so much. Mitchell looks great. Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us. He was hanging out here with his mom. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. Thanks, guys. Of course. Thank you. That is Kathleen. She's the mom of Nelson, who's nine, and Mitchell, who is seven. And of course, they get a lot of treatment here at BC Children's hospital they both have hemophilia mitchell of course also winning his battle with leukemia and we're so glad to hear that